Good morning again. Um, if you missed our announcements, uh, I'm not Dave. I'm, I'm Stephen. I'm filling in for Pastor Dave. He is off in Tennessee looking at universities, uh, more than likely mourning the fact that his son might move off to college next year. Um, also, another new thing that you, I don't know if you noticed yet if you're in the back, uh, I'm further back than I normally am because typically our stage goes up to that front row of seats, but we, we, we chopped the stage off a good bit. Uh, so, so if I fall, just, you know, don't laugh and we'll just keep on, we'll keep on trucking. Um, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to the book of Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We are continuing in our series uh, entitled Meet Jesus, and today Jesus is going to meet the self-righteous. Um, in between, between last week's text that I got to preach at Watershed and then this week's text, um, and it, it was like a one-two punch where, where God's just hit me in all, all my vulnerable places, you know, with money and then again with, with self-righteousness. Uh, it, it, is, it is a sin that, that I struggle with. Um, in fact, if, if you ever heard my testimony, I was, I was raised in a, in a wonderful Christian family, uh, in, a, in a wonderful church. It's one of those churches where you go to church three times a week. You know, you go to church Sunday morning, and Sunday evening is, is another service, except it's not the same one you went to in the morning. You know, it's a different sermon. And then we go again on Wednesdays, and we were just always there. Um, in Sunday school, I felt like I knew the Bible really well. Uh, but then when I, when, it, when I got into high school, it's like God did a, a movement in my life. He, he, he transformed me some as another step in, in, in his sanctification of me. Uh, and, and, I, and I just felt like in my whole life I was just almost being like a, a Pharisee where I had a, good, a lot of good knowledge, but I didn't have any passion or, or love towards God. And I thought, man, thank, thank the Lord he, he rescued me from that. Uh, and he did rescue me from it, but I keep falling back into it. Uh, I, I was thinking earlier about in college, once again, after I felt like I was freed from that, I went to college and uh, had, had a friend, I was a Christian studies major there at Howard Payne University down the road in Brownwood. I had a friend that we used to joke a lot about some of the other Christian studies majors. Uh, they, were, they were the people always arguing with the professors, always thought they had the right answer, and so we... We just we always kind of jokingly in our in our own little conversations called them LPs. They were they were the little Pharisees and and I look back on that now I think how self righteous was I? And, you know, at the time I, I I didn't realize it. At the time I thought, man, yeah, they're just way off and I've got it right. Uh, but now I look back on it and I'm thinking I was I was horrible, and, and it makes it makes me worry that in ten years. From now, I look back on my life at 36, and I think, what was I thinking? I was horrible at 36. But, but that, that's kind of the way the gospel works in us, right? He, he transforms us. He saves us. He redeems us. And as we grow older in this life, he makes us more like Jesus. So I do hope that in 10 years, I look back and think, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? But this, this text really seems to highlight this idea of self-righteousness. Uh, so let's go ahead and read the text and see, see what the Lord has for us today. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath your bench, and uh, we're on page 877. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. 
He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word, which serves as your double-edged sword, and it pierces into us, cutting us deeply, Lord, to the core of our being. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would work as a surgeon today, seeking out the cancer that might lie within us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes when Jesus tells a parable, we scratch our heads and we say, what in the world is Jesus trying to say with this story? Kind of like last week, the story of the, uh, with the, uh, the shrewd manager. We thought, what in the world's going on here? It's hard. It's difficult. We have to do lots of studies. We have to seek lots of opinions. But I really like parables like this one, where Jesus essentially lays it out before he even tells a parable. He says, it says, uh, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So what are we talking about? We are talking today about those of us, which I would contend is all of us, who think that we are righteous and we hold other people in contempt. So as we look at this parable today, we, we want to look at three different things. We want to look at the signs of self-righteousness. We'll do some diagnostics on ourselves and say, is there any evidence within us that points to the fact that we are self-righteous? So we want the signs of self-righteousness, the results of self-righteousness, and the cure of self-righteousness. So the signs, the results, and the cure of self-righteousness. So first of all, the the signs of self-righteousness. We see this Pharisee coming to the temple to pray And what does he do? He prays, he comes close to the altar, he lifts up his head, standing by himself, he praying to God and says, thank you, God, that I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer. I'm a pretty good guy. I fast twice a week. I I tithe on everything. I don't just tithe on my paycheck, I tithe on my garden. I count my tomatoes, and I give half of that away. He was looking at himself, and what he did is he had the sign of self-righteousness. I think the first sign of self-righteousness is that we have this inflated view of our own goodness. We have an inflated view of our own goodness. If I, I bet if I were to 
conduct an interview, a poll of, of people coming into this church before we read this parable and before we started talking about this sermon. If I were to just ask, man, are you a good person? I think many, if not most of us, would say, yeah, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I try really hard. I vote the right way. I, I, I do my best to obey the speed limit. When I do get pulled over, I give respect to the officer. I'm a good guy. In fact, I think most Americans are like us. It's an old poll, but Barna, back in 2003, took a poll on heaven and hell of Americans and our view of it. And I was kind of astounded by the results. 76% of Americans, 76% of Americans believe in a heaven. They might not believe in a God, but they at least believe in a heaven. Of that 76%, 30% believe that they will go to heaven because they tried to keep the Ten Commandments or because they believe they're pretty good people. 30%. You do the math, that's, that's well over 70 million people. In a country of 330 million people, 70, uh, 76 believe that there's a heaven and 30% believe, I'll go there because I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy. I think a sign of self-righteousness, a sign that we see in the Pharisee, a sign that I see in my own life, is we have this inflated view of our own goodness. I'm a pretty good guy. I think the other sign of self-righteousness, not only that we have this inflated view of our own goodness, but we also have this, this deflated view of God's holiness. Because what we do is whenever we look at our goodness, who do we compare it against? We can bear it against people who aren't as good as us, right? I'm a good person because I'm better than them. I'm a good person because I, I don't do that. But what we don't do is we don't compare ourselves to a holy, good, and perfect God. It does remind me of Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah the prophet has this vision. Uh, it's right after King Uzziah died. He's going through these trials and this doubt, time of doubting. And it says he had this vision, and he said he saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. The earth was filled with his glory. The angels were hovering around God, shielding their face, shielding their feet, uh, because they were in the presence of a holy God, and they were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is, is filled with his glory. These angels had an appropriate view of the holiness of God. Moses was told to take his shoes off while approaching the burning bush. These angels, not even touching the ground, covered their feet. And what did Isaiah the prophet say? He said, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. He says, I'm undone, I'm, I'm ruined. Why? Because he was in the presence of a holy God. Isaiah was a prophet. You talk to Isaiah before Uzziah died, before he had this vision. I don't know. I'm just guessing. This is kind of extra biblical. But I'm just guessing, Isaiah, are you a good guy? I'm an all right guy. You know, I'm a prophet. God speaks to me pretty clearly. and I speak to other people. I try to obey the law. I don't know if that's where he was, but man, when he was in the presence of God, 
he realized that he was undone. Signs of self-righteousness is we have this inflated view of our own goodness and a deflated view of God's holiness. I think when we have this approach, inflated view of our own goodness, deflated view of God's holiness, what begins to to grow in us is this self-righteous attitude that we begin to believe that we can trust in our own righteousness. And so what are the results of that when we begin to trust in our own righteousness? We see two in the text. The first result of self-righteousness is contempt. Contempt for other people. Contempt essentially means to scorn, to reject, to despise. We feel that about other people that we know or that we see in our culture, in our lives. We see this in the Pharisee, don't we? As he was praying to God, as he was in the act of worship, he says, thank you, God, that I am not like other men that I know. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector over here. I haven't betrayed my people. I haven't succumbed to the authority of Rome. I don't extort my neighbors. Thank you that I'm not like him. What was a Pharisee doing? He was looking at scorn at this tax collector. Self-righteousness tends to breed contempt within us. It reminds me of a game that I played as a child that has a couple different names, but you kind of get the gist. King of the Mountain or King of the Hill. You know this game? I mean, it's before video games were like super popular and kids used to go outside because there's nothing to do inside. And we would go outside and we would find a pile of dirt or a pile of sand. The bigger, the better. And anything worth doing is worth competing about, right? And so you'd have your brothers there. I was the youngest of three, so I always lost. Uh, Or you have your friends there, and what do you do? You start to race up that pile of dirt. You start to race up that pile of sand. And the goal was what you wanted to do is you wanted to claw your way to the top and stay there as long as possible. How do you do that? Well, on your way up to the top, if someone's ahead of you, you grab their ankle and you pull them down. You, you push them, you elbow them, you get to the top. Man, if someone takes a dive at you, you kind of push them aside. You do the Heisman thing. You, you, you just keep people away. And really, whenever we look at self-righteousness, that, that's essentially what we're doing. We're playing king of the mountain with righteousness. We're seeking the moral high ground where we can be king of our own little world. And so what do you have to do to maintain your self-righteousness? What do you have to do to maintain that, that winner status? You have to keep other people down. You have to push them down. You have to keep them down. You have to despise them. You have to heap scorn upon them. It's the way of the world apart from Christ, playing king of the mountain. I know some of us, when we think about our lives, we, we do say things like, but I've, I've earned where I've gotten. I am where I am in my life because I did have to claw my way there. 
I have wealth because I was responsible and I did work hard. I, I, I have a, a certain morality because I disciplined myself and I beat my body to say no to those addictions in my life. But what happens is, is, is we begin to heap scorn on other people because of what we think we've done in our own life. Jerome Barnes writes, he's in a book, he says, A good name, wealth, social standing, self-reliance, intelligence, success, and rank all easily breed self-righteousness in us. And self-righteousness produces contempt. Think about that. Are any of those things bad? Is a good name a bad thing? It's not a bad thing. Thank God that I was given a good name, that I had a strong heritage. But I also have to realize, what did I do to get that good name? Nothing. I was born into it. It was given to me. What did I do to get my wealth? To a large extent, Would I be where I am had I been born in a different country in a different time to different parents? I'd done very little. It is all a gift. It is all mercy. And to think that we have done much to earn it makes us self-righteous. And when we are self-righteous, we hold people in contempt Contempt leads to broken relationships. Hard question I had to ask myself this week, and it's a hard question I'm going to ask you, is I want you to think of individual names in your life right now of people to whom you hold contempt for, of people you look down upon that you scorn, that you reject or like to reject, people that you despise. My guess is you can think of a name or two. I I know I could. Think of people that you tend to speak of in generalities. Say, if you all would just do this, if you would just behave in this way, if you would just make these type of decisions, your problems would be done with. Whenever we speak in generalities, whenever we heap scorn upon people, Not only is it a sign that we are self-righteous, we are self-righteous, and and we have these broken relationships as a result. And it also shows the second result of self-righteousness. The first is that we have a broken relationship with others. The second is that we have a broken relationship with God. This Pharisee who kept the laws to the best of his ability, over 600 laws in the Old Testament, he He had contempt for this tax collector. And Jesus says at the end of this parable, he says, I tell you, this man, the the tax collector, the sinner, went down to his house justified rather than the other. What is this saying? This is saying that if we are self-righteous, if we are counting on our own righteousness, if we are holding other people in contempt, we not only have broken relationship with our fellow human being, but we have a broken relationship and fellowship with God. He walked home still convicted 
of his sins, still separated from God. And here's the ironic thing. You have this Pharisee whose entire life was about trying to maintain and live out the laws of God. And all the while he was doing that, he was breaking over half of them. Think about what the Bible says about God's law. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus responded to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus adds this. He says the second greatest is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. It says on these two laws, all the teachings, all the law, all the prophet hangs on these two laws, to love God and love your neighbor. And this Pharisee who did his best to keep every law, to dot every I and cross every T, broke half of God's law by keeping contempt upon his brother. God's law calls us to mercy. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. we do that, we are loving justice and mercy, and we're walking humbly with our God. We're keeping the commands of God. So we we see the signs of self-righteousness, this inflated view of our own goodness, this deflated view of God's holiness. We see the results of self-righteousness, broken relationships with our fellow humans, but also broken relationship with God. But thankfully, Whenever we are in Scripture, we always have good news. And the good news is that there is cure for self-righteousness. There's a cure. There's, there's a medicine. There's something that, that we can receive to make us better. And we see that in the picture of the tax collector. Tax collectors were considered traitors to their people. I, I don't know if we've talked about this recently, but, but uh, tax collectors, uh, whenever, whenever Rome was ruling the world. They came in, they defeated God's people, the Jews, uh, and after they slaughtered thousands of them, they didn't then said, hey, we're in charge, uh, but we need some of your help, uh, which is always kind of a hard thing to do. Uh, I defeated you, I killed some of your neighbors, but now we need some help. If you help us collect taxes that we need to run our government, you can then charge your neighbors whatever you want uh, to pay for yourself. Uh, so we have this picture of, of Rome conquering a people, and, and think of it locally. Like you have a town, a village, uh, some of the men in that village and the wives and the children were, were killed or enslaved by Rome, and they then pick one of your neighbors to be tax collector. And they come and they knock on your door, and they say, it's time to give your money to Rome. They want this much, I'm demanding this much because I've got I to gotta pay myself, right? I, I've got to live. They were extorting their own people. They were considered traitors. They were considered sinners. And this tax collector comes to the temple to pray, and he doesn't barely get inside the door. I mean, he is one step in, and he stops. Why? Because he realizes he's in a holy place of a holy God, and he can't come forward. He is so broken, he is so contrite in heart that he cannot even lift his head up to pray 
but with his head bowed, he prays, God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, beating his chest while praying. It reminds me of of King David. Whenever King David committed adultery and killed Uriah, he penned a psalm, Psalm chapter 51. And in verse 17, David writes this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. What was David saying? David was saying what God really wants is not for us just to go through the motions. God's not going to say, well, you darkened the doors of the church today, therefore you're a good person. You have got my stamp of approval. Man, you went above and beyond. You sat towards the front and you sang. You're, you're doubly righteous today, right? But David was saying that's not what God's interested in. God's not interested on you giving him a log of how often you read your Bible and prayed. What does God want of us? He wants a broken and contrite heart. These things he won't despise. Those other things, if you're not broken, if you're not contrite, and you do those other things, it's saying that God despises those. That, that, that it, it turns him off. It turns him away. He doesn't want it. But he wants a broken and contrite heart. So what do we need to do as God's people? How do we get there? Think a few different things. Uh, a few applications and then we'll close. I think the first thing we need to do to have this cure is that we have to acknowledge our sin. We have to acknowledge the sin that exists in our lives. And one of the ways that we have to acknowledge our sin, the only way we can get there is if we stop justifying our sin. We have to stop justifying our sin. Because what we typically do is, is we like to, to blame our sin on other people or the situations that we're in. I said that horribly rude and hurtful thing to them because they said this to me. I, I did this horrible thing because of the situation that I was in. And we blame our sin and we justify our sin on the situations that we're in and the people that we're dealing with. But what Scripture tells us time and time again, that our sin is not a result of the people we engage with or the situations that we are in, but sin is a result of the darkness of our own hearts. And we can't acknowledge our own sin as long as we are justifying it away. To acknowledge our sin, we have to stop justifying it. To acknowledge our sin, we have to stop comparing ourselves with others. Remember what we said last week? We said, well, I'm not the wealthy person. I'm not the rich person because the rich person is a person who has more money. I'm not the greedy person because the greedy person has to be that guy. They have more stuff. I'm not a bad person because that guy behaves way worse than I do. And I would never treat my wife that way. And I would never speak to my kids in that way. And what we're doing is we are always comparing ourselves not to the God-man of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, but we compare ourselves to other fallen human beings 
who are also in need of God's great mercy. To acknowledge our own sin, we have to stop justifying it. We have to stop comparing it with others. We have to own it. Jerry Bridges, who, who recently died in an interview I was listening to this week, said something very simple and very profound. He said that the gospel is for sinners. I know you're saying, wow, Steve, yeah, you're easily wowed. The gospel is for sinners. So simple, right? But if we can't admit that we are sinners, the gospel is no use to us. If we can't see our sin, if we can't confess our own sin, if we, if, if we don't acknowledge it, then the blood of Jesus is not for us. It has no power in our lives because we think we have our own righteousness. So the second thing we need to do, we need to acknowledge our own sin, but it's not enough to say, you know what, I am a horrible sinner. The second thing we need to do is have a broken and contrite heart over our sin. When is the last time we cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? I see my sin, and my sin is great. And I sin not only against my wife or my kids or my coworkers, but God, I, I ultimately, I've sinned against you. Forgive me of my sin. Jesus, in our parable, in verse 14, says, I tell you, it was a tax collector that went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord and seek his forgiveness. And this does an amazing thing in us. Whenever we do humble ourselves before God and we receive his mercy, it ought to be a constant reminder to us that we have something that we did not earn, that we did not deserve, but it is a gift from God. And what this ought to do in us is change the way that we interact with other people. Since we have this gift that we didn't deserve, we shouldn't go to people and look at them with contempt and scorn and despise. But when we are around other people and we see their sin and we see their shortcomings, prick our heart not to despise but but towards compassion towards mercy towards a brokenness for them what would it look like man there there are churches worshiping all over Colleen what would it look like if everyone who filled those churches went out in Colleen on Fort Hood and they had compassion and mercy towards sinners and we were united in that. It, it moves people towards God, that type of attitude, that type of posture. I'll end with this. When Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, he said in passing something along these lines, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. I'm sure when Jesus' disciples heard that, they thought, that's impossible. You can't be more righteous than the Pharisees because they keep God's law 
so closely. But what was Jesus saying? Saying the only way for us to inherit the kingdom of God is to have a righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees. That righteousness is not a righteousness of our own, but it's the righteousness of Christ in us. We can stand before our God, not because we are worthy, because one was worthy for us, not because we are righteous, but because there is one who was righteous for us. Let that be the marker on our lives where we go out humbly and with mercy. Let us pray. God, our Father, we we do thank you for Jesus who died, who rose again, who forgave us of our sins. Keep us, O Lord, from the sin of self-righteousness where we think it is by our own good works, Lord, that we can stand before you. We pray this in Jesus' name.